Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax. It's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome to the Vet Gurus, Brendan with Mark, as always, episode 315, Thursday, October the 5th, 2023. Mark, as usual, we were having a little bit of a chat in our pre-production meeting and pretty crappy weather down here, but you mentioned that up in, up north it's um, hot and steamy. Um, I don't know, you said you enjoy it, but I, I think I go a bit tropo with the really humid hot weather um perhaps you're you're accustomed acclimatized to it are you you have to unmute yourself there mark i think i put you on mute so it's your turn to unmute yourself and talk to me talk to me here i am there you are (laughs) i um, am i i do think i am becoming acclimatized i i um yeah i don't i don't need to um be in the in the fan uh, we have no air conditioning where we're staying. Um, Kate has some air conditioning at work, but um, but yeah, I I don't mind it at all. It is this this season just before we're just entering um, that time before the wet begins. The wet usually starts about mid November, and the six weeks or so before has a real um, uh, um, heavy air field. It's humid. It's draining on everyone but it's a great time to it's the end of the dry and so lots of animals are congregating around um what water is left in the various water pools and streams and so i get to see quite a lot at this time and i'm enjoying it immensely excellent not jealous at all as usual mark (laughs) a little bit of housekeeping vetgurus.com the place to go to look at our previous episodes do a search there thank you to all our subscribers and our wonderful our wonderful sponsors chemical essentials oxbow animal health australia and microchips australia and we'd love you to head over to our Etsy store and have a look at some of the merchandise there, which hopefully will be updated fairly soon. And uh, oh, that's good to hear. Yes, we might have a couple of new items on the list there, Mark. Um, I'm just starting to look through some potential options for that, so that should be good. And with that, I think we'll jump into we're very punchy today, Mark. Our news stories, I think you wanted to take the first one and. Not unsurprisingly, it's a bird news item. And look, it's a pretty unsurprising story all round, I would have thought. It's um, the story of um, a failed breeding season for the wonderful emperor penguins in Antarctica. And it all is to do with some um, receding sea ice. Uh, the, 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 it's, it is fascinating that a lot of the assessment of the 62 colonies of emperor penguins in Antarctica, um, um, uh, look, um, the assessment's made via satellite images of colonies to determine the fate of the breeding season. Um, and horribly enough, of the five colonies that were easily observed by satellite data, four of them probably lost all the chicks for the season uh, over the last 12 months. Now, 
This is not an unheard of thing, Brendan. It's um, uh, There are colonies in Antarctica of emperor penguins which have lost the entire uh, season's chip. Okay, Mark, we had a bit of a glitch there, so continue. I was talking about the the um, breeding events that fail, and it's not an uncommon thing for, on occasions, one of the 62 colonies to um, have all their, to have a failed breeding season. Um, but it is a little bit unusual for 80% of the, the observed colonies to have that happen. And it looks like this might be something that, uh, well, has happened two years in a row. Um, so in 2022, the sea ice broke up before some of the colonies were finished fledging. And without their waterproof feathers, the fledging birds are unable to survive. And so that sea ice has to sub to last until the penguins, uh, until the juvenile penguins are completely uh, fledged and have their adult plumage so they can be insulated and swim in the ice cold waters of the Antarctic. Look, I think this is just another thing, Brendan, that our grim outlook uh, on many species reminds us that we've got to take urgent action on climate change so that we can stop these warming events and give these birds a chance to continue to breed and live in the wild. Yep, I agree. I agree. It's not a particularly... Um happy story at all is it mark um and it's just another yeah did you know brendan of the of the i think there's 13 penguin species that are 13 or 11 that occur in antarctica and the emperor penguins are the only ones i haven't seen ah well you better get back there mark I know, quick right quick quick. <laughs> quick all right my new story is a um a little bit of a, a Perhaps a good news story. It's about uh, sniffer dogs, Mark, but it's sniffer dogs here in Melbourne, Victoria, at Hillsville Sanctuary, one of the zoos here, the native animal zoo here, and finding platypus, Mark, using sniffer, sniffer dogs, in particular, Kip the sniffer dog, Mark, to sniff out the platypus tunnels um, so they can do monitoring of the platypus in their burrows mark um, because platypus are notoriously difficult to find and trap so they're training up six expert sniffer dogs to form part of a wildlife detection dog program at hillsville sanctuary so i think it's a fantastic idea and uh, it makes sense doesn't it when we have all these um, sniffer dogs at um, you know border security places um, designed to sniff different types of narcotics and etc and even I'm, I'm fascinated by the ones on those um border security programs mark where they have sniffer dogs that when you go for the, through the airport and they're trained to sniff out anybody who has over a certain amount of money and it might be something like you know a thousand dollars us if if you've got more than a thousand dollars us in your suitcase or your pocket they'll they'll signal um but if you've got less than a thousand they don't so i just find that Pretty amazing how they how they do that. Um, the smell of money, Mark. <laughs> the smell of money. So it is interesting. There that we go. There's a whole there's a whole cohort of um of uh, an, what would you call them nature dogs um, who are where where dogs generally are a negative in those wild environments. I know, for example, um, sniffer dogs are used to identify the endangered masked owl in Tasmania 
Um, they've been trained to sniff out yeah. their scats. They're notoriously difficult to find. So all these um, um, uh, uh, easily, you know, the very shy animals that hide away, that have life cycles that are not easily observed, um, the, the strength of the sniffer dogs gives us a whole lot of um, additional information. It's, um, it is, and, and crikeys, if they can detect the difference between 999 US dollars and 1001, that's it's only fair <laughs> that they that they use that, uh, that skill. <laughs> yes, and uh, just, just finished, Mark, um, September is the Australian Conservation Foundation have a citizen science project, Platy Project, where encourages people to head down to the local creek or river and spot, spot platypus and record what they see. They haven't got the information out yet from this month because it's only just finished, obviously, from September. We've been in the start of October as we record, but last year platypus was recorded at 59 locations where the species hadn't been recorded for more than a decade and in 45 spots where they were documented for the first time. So it is a bit of a new, good news story, that one, Mark, and we will link to both of those news stories on our website, vetgurus.com. So Don't we I love think... the citizen science stuff, Brendan? It's, it's yeah. very, very cool. It makes you feel good inside when you get involved with those. What well, does to me, Mark? Um, and it's just, like, I think they're good for doing things like it's those like those bird watching apps, etc. That you've sort of pointed me towards, and that's I've turned into a mild twitching person. Um, where <laughs> it gives you an option to, you know, reason, I suppose, of uh, another reason to get out there and actually spend a bit of time in the in the bush mark in the countryside in the wild outdoors mark um and collect them all um so yes so our main topic this week mark is um one that um i think i'll quiz you mostly on this one because you you have these species or this um the, this um well a few of them i think different types at home you have to tell me a little bit about it we're going to talk about pet frog care mark and the basics of frog husbandry which i don't think we've covered in in a specific podcast previously mark so and frogs are certainly popular pets aren't they mark they're popular animals all around brendan and uh and um, they're increasingly becoming animals that uh, people are here in Australia in particular uh, are keen to keep. Their, our laws in various parts of Australia prevented us keeping them as, uh, as pets for many years in an attempt to protect them. And those laws have been um, loosened up. And so, uh, yeah, we, we can keep them. And I know many places around the world are fortunate in that they have... Uh, um, well, some of them even have the same frogs we have. Um, often, you know, one of the most popular frogs here in Australia is our green tree frog, uh, commonly known as white's frog. Um, and uh, I know that's a very popular species in the US to be kept as a pet as well. Yep, yep. Uh, so, oh, gee, I've got so many questions, Mark. I've got so many questions here. So let's let's just get back to basics. If you have a client who who heads into your clinic or phones up the clinic and says, I want to keep some frogs. What's your first bit of advice to the mark? Um, and the two things I, I commonly think about initially are what, what species you'd recommend and do you get one frog or do 
to purchase more than one frog? Oh, good, good question, Brendan. Um, there, there is that. There used to be the situation where there literally was a very limited number of species available from um, breeders, people who kept them and bred them. Um, but that range of species has increased. So the question, which ones should I get, um, has become much, much more relevant. The beauty of uh, the, the green tree frog, white's tree frog, Lytoria cerealia here in Australia is that they are very robust frogs. And, um, and so they generally would be one of the ones that I would recommend to start with. The difficult thing with, um, with many of the other species too is that they're much more cryptic. Um, white's tree frog uh, quickly becomes accustomed to people. Um, and so we'll come out uh, in the early evening. Most of the day they spend holed up somewhere maintaining their hydration status. Um, and then they come out in the evening to hunt. Uh, but they quickly become accustomed to people. And so, um, yeah, hand feeding them is not impossible. And, and, uh, and generally they make excellent first-time frog pets. Excellent advice as always, Mark. Now let's... Talk about the vivarium. What's your? I know there's minimum sizes, um, but here in Australia, um, with, with, with animal enclosures, um, whether there is for different states and territories, it will vary, and certainly within countries as well. But forgetting about the actual legalities of what's recommended for minimum sizes, what's your general suggestions for a, a decent size for somebody who goes out and they purchase one or two? Um, froggies and you want to advise that client um, um, to provide a decent um, environment for those frogs, mate? Well, it's a good question because um, I think that we sort of, because we'll often see them um, maybe in the day when they're, they're doing their uh, hiding away, maintaining body fluid story, or in the early evening when they're sitting in one spot, we might not realise how very active these animals are. And so um, I always recommend, I always talk to people, first of all, about the considerable investment in the enclosure that's needed to be made. And one of the key aspects is to make it as big as, as is possible. And obviously many of these frogs are gonna end up in uh, a young person who has an interest in these animals in their bedroom. And so size is limited somewhat. Uh, but I always say to people that you need to make it, uh, these animals are surprisingly active um, and uh, it needs to be made as big as possible. The enclosure that I've got uh, is, measures about 1.8 metres long. It's about a metre wide and about 1.2 metres high. It has a pool in the bottom, um, so there's constant humidity. Um, but that, uh, that houses only... Uh, I think I've got 11 frogs in there at the moment. Um, and, um, and geez, I wouldn't want it any smaller for those individuals. So making it a decent size is that first consideration if you're going to get frogs. Yes, and I think it's important to get across to the clients about the whole aspect of we don't want a prison cell for the animal. We want them to have a, an environment they can explore, as you mentioned, and to have, have varying you know, humidities within the microclimate that's there, temperature as well, and we'll get onto those sorts of things in a sec. Um, and certainly lots of different areas they can get away and hide from the prying eyes of the human that's looking after the mark. Um, substrate, what sort of substrates do you recommend? 
Well, non-abrasive ones is the first one. And particularly in, in uh, the case of uh, the tree frogs, they're great pets because they will perch on a whole variety of plants and branches and uh, they take full advantage of the, um, the three-dimensional environment, if you like. So in my enclosure, there's the, the pond at the bottom um, which I treat essentially as an aquarium, trying to maintain a very high water quality, um, and the turn the movement of water is facilitated by a uh, pump that creates a waterfall, um, and and I test that water regularly, um, and the frogs stay in the branches, and and uh, I've got a, a hollow log. They love to get into that above the water. Um, yep. So those non-abrasive surfaces, uh, a significant amount of them, significant amount of hides, so they can get to different locations, um, they form the best substrates. Often, though, people will have an enclosure that may have a pond at the bottom, but also has an area of land. I try to get people to avoid, there's a temptation to create a, you know, a, what are they, paludarium type setup where they put potting mix maybe or some form of substrate around the, the pond. I try to avoid that. They become very, very difficult to manage and they require... Maintenance, a, yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so something simple that's easily cleaned. If you have a land area, um, maybe a, a, a piece of styrofoam that's carved into a relief and coloured or maybe some... Uh, um, uh, plastic um, material that the that you can easily clean. Um, these this the the soil and sand substrates I tend to avoid with the uh, with the um, uh, the frogs that I have. You have to be a little bit careful if you're going to use something like uh, artificial grass mats or you know those um, turf uh, that sometimes used in reptile and uh, amphibian enclosures and um, they can be very abrasive the edges of those fake nylon bits of artificial grass can uh, be particularly irritating to the underside of the animal and so um, so yeah I tend to find that um, something simple uh, on the base uh, that's maybe um, some pebbles if I'm trying to put something dry in one part and a pond in another part um, but um, I like my uh, flattened aquarium on the base that works really well for me right and speaking of cage furniture mate what do you think about the plastic plants because i've certainly had a few frogs where i've either had to perform surgery or sedate them and, and pull out you know they for some reason they they decide to try and eat one of the one of the um, leaves of the plastic plant mark and you're exactly right, Brendan. If there is anything that um, moves unusually, and so a lot of the plastic plants will have a an attachment point, so you can sort of almost build like your your own shaped plant. Um, but if they are able to be separated and one bit just wiggles around a bit unusually and maybe the, the filter movement or um, another frog in the enclosure um, moving, um, then those frogs will be motivated to jump and bite that and swallow it if they possibly can. And, yeah, uh, and yeah uh, making sure that all those, uh, whether it's artificial plants um, or even uh, real plants or other forms of uh, substrate branches or 
um, whatever, making sure that they're of a size that um, can't break off and, and uh, be swallowed by the frog is really important because, as you said, um, working with foreign bodies with them is particularly if there's um, uh, um, small bits to the leaves of those artificial plants, you almost invariably will end up with one of them being ingested. And that, that I, I missed the bit before. I was going to say that um, my experience is that uh, I've always kept groups of frogs uh, because largely because I want them to uh, uh, to have the you know full spectrum of frog interaction and and maybe even some reproductive activity. But um, they are solitary animals for large parts of the year, and so um, unless you have a an enclosure that's sufficiently large. You shouldn't feel compelled to have multiple frogs. Um, uh, multiple frogs will uh, require a bigger enclosure, greater filter, they produce more waste, they increase your maintenance. Um, and so a single frog on their own uh, is not So speaking about, Mark, sorry to interrupt, about um, water, do you want to talk about um, what sort of what do you put in there and and do you need a filter or not and do you do water testing good questions brendan yes i i and particularly as you if you do have multiple frogs they produce a significant amount of nitrogenous waste and so testing the water um to make sure that it's uh, not too rich in ammonia and the other nitrogenous wastes and having a filtration system with a biological filter so that's at least some of that's broken down and a regular process as with every aquarium, um, a regular process of uh, water replacement to keep those waste products down low, um, that's a critical thing. We know um, that one of the very common reasons frogs come to us with skin disease is because they've been immersed in uh, water that looks fine, uh, but is carrying too much of those nitrogenous wastes that damage their delicate skin. Yep. Excellent points, Mark. Now, hides. What sort of hides do you recommend and how many? Um, Not enough. Never, never enough. enough. That's what I'd say. Never <laughs> enough. Um, I think that that's one of the things that because people like to see their frogs, um, they often don't give enough thought to the, the sense of concealment that the frogs really need. And particularly in that daytime, um, if they are not uh, in a spot where they feel suitably enclosed and the, the thing about a hide is for frogs that it needs to, first of all, make them feel secure and hidden, but it also has to provide the appropriate hydration environment um, that if it is exposed and very uh, well ventilated, um, they will dry out. And so quite a few well, um, well-designed hides, refuges, are, uh, are a good thing for them. I know online now many people even uh, create hides for their wild frogs um, and, uh, and some form of plastic tubing. Um, you can go to town with your creativity and, and carve them up so they look like hollow logs. But uh, um, uh, I've got a, uh, a 10 centimetre water pipe uh, hung horizontally with a number of holes through it and um, and the frogs take good advantage of that sort of place uh, sitting up high in the enclosure um, avoiding the ventilation and maintaining their hydration while remaining hidden from their perception of predators yes so measuring 
environmental parameters in there. So you've mentioned humidity. So ideally buying a little hygrometer mark and they're quite cheap these days, a little humidity, whether you get an analog or a digital one. Um, presumably we want to determine the temperature gradient in an enclosure. So I'd like you to ch- chat a little bit about what sort of temperature gradient you'd, you'd view as ideal in, in a generic frog enclosure. Well, the temperature gradient in the enclosure that I have is uh, the, the the aquarium water, if you like, the water in the bottom is heated, um, and that's heated to 26 degrees. And then I have a spot heat light at the top of the enclosure, uh, but that creates an excellent gradient that runs um, in the enclosure from right under the hot spot where it's about 30 degrees, back over to the uh, most remote spot where it's just under 20 degrees, about 19 degrees. Um, And that's the sort of gradient I like these frogs to be kept in. It's a good point though, Brendan, that there are an increasing number of uh, frogs that come from more tropical environments. Um, So things like the white-lipped tree frog or um, the magnificent tree frog, uh, Lotoria splendida here in Australia. And these animals will need, obviously, a gradient that um, is a little bit higher. And so that research, having a look at um, what the individual species you're looking at might require, is a critical part of setting yourself up before you get the animal. Yep, absolutely. Now, you mentioned temperature gradients. We mentioned uh, humidity there. What about lighting, Mark? Talk to me a little bit about lighting. What sort of lighting? When do you turn it on or off or do you leave it on 24-7? This is one of the areas when I'm talking to potential frog owners um, that um, because they're nocturnal animals and people expect they're going to come out at night, that uh, you know the normal cycle that we would have with our lights on the outside, just daylight or whatever, that that will be enough and people don't need to consider lights. But nothing could be further from the truth, Brendan. Um, uh, The frogs regularly uh, uh, bask. I've regularly seen uh, many of the frogs in the wild position themselves in such a way that they have a foot out in the sun or um, uh, some aspect of them is exposed to sunlight. And that won't be for all day, so they don't become desiccated, but they do require some exposure to ultraviolet light. And this is even more important when many of the frogs that people acquire are young metamorphs doing the rapid growth phase of their life. Um, And without exposure, appropriate exposure to ultraviolet light, Um, they will become victims to metabolic bone disease and end up with um, misshapen limbs and and, uh, and other complications associated with calcium metabolism derangements. So exposure to ultraviolet light. I like them to have... uh, uh, My frogs, I have them on a day-night cycle as well as the uh, ultraviolet light. Um, They have a diurnal cycle. And as I have... Uh, as I'm trying to encourage them to have normal behaviours, I couple uh, varying day length with um, spraying them with water at particular times to mimic storm activity in, in, in our spring here in Australia to try and stimulate their reproductive activity. Um, and so at least, at the very least, you need ultraviolet light exposure and, and uh, a diurnal cycle 
Um, but I also have those I mentioned before, the, the um, spotlights that provide uh, um, a focal heat, but the ones that I use also provide uh, um, light as well. So lighting them is not in, by any stretch a simple matter. Um, and, and, and this is one of the things about frogs that um, I constantly... And also making sure that we change oh, those yes. UV lights regularly, Mark, um, perhaps changing them every six months, um, certainly no, no, no less frequently than every 12 months um, in order to make sure that that UVB production is, is consistent with them. Okay, Mark, so a big one here, what do we feed these froggies? Uh, my, my comment to clients is always variety. And variety is the spice of life, and variety is a good thing to consider when you're feeding uh, your frogs. There's no doubt about it, Brendan. Um, when you have just one food source, um, you're going to be at risk of uh, the failings of that food source. So I, we do get to see many frogs that have just been fed mealworms because they're convenient and easily available. Um, but the... the uh, the, the nutritional failings of mealworms are amplified when they're the only food source. So um, getting some uh, uh, cultured roaches, getting some crickets, uh, um, earthworms of various species, as well as mealworms. We know that all our frogs are going to be insectivorous, um, and so a variety of, uh, of uh, insects and we've talked about this before with any of our insectivorous animals that um, the best health is engendered when we pay attention to the health and welfare of the prey species as well. Um, and so making sure that those insects are very well fed and cared for, that they're kept in a way that minimises disease on their part um, engenders their health and well-being. but also that's passed on to the frogs, isn't it, Brendan? Absolutely. Variety, Mark. And uh, I, clients often jump in and say, well, look, I'm worried about parasites with my frog. And I usually retort saying um, I'm more worried about um, metabolic bone disease and other dietary deficiencies or inadequacies, Mark, um, related to a too narrow diet. And we will be doing routine faecal checks on your froggy anyway, or your frog enclosure um, group of frogs. And that will solve that problem. Um, uh, cleaning, you mentioned about the water, um, you mentioned about the furniture there. How, how do we clean them safely and correctly? Vigorously. We have to be fairly vigorous with our cleaning. <laughs> um, and I find in my enclosure that if I use, um, you know, a spray bottle to, of water, of water, um, I don't use uh, in the enclosure any... Um, uh, uh, um, chemicals. Um, I use the water, spray the stuff down into the bottom of the enclosure and vacuum it out of there. When I'm doing a major clean, maybe a couple of times a year, I'll take the enclosure furniture out and I'll give it a scrub in F10 to, um, uh, to help lift any pathogens off there and, and uh, render it aseptic. Um, but in the enclosure, um, it's elbow grease um, and yep. drive it down to the bottom and vacuum it out thoroughly and do those water changes. So how, and how regular do you suggest clients do it? Look, I, I, 
each week, I think you need to um, uh, get in and, and clean the enclosure down each week. Um, that's I find that I get into more trouble um, in those times that I'm really busy and I'm unable to get in and give the enclosure a clean. That's when there is changes in the water quality. That's where there's um, uh, growth of uh, um, unusual funguses on and molds on the substrate where uh, fecal material, even very small smears of it sit. Um, it, it doesn't take long in that warm, wet environment, even with good uh, ventilation before you've got uh, bad things happening and they in turn affect the frogs. So that gets on to our final little mention of vet checks, Mark. What's your recommendation to the clients when they purchase their frog? How, what are they doing as far as how often are they bringing their little froggers in? Do they bring their froggers in? How do they bring them in? And what are we doing on our routine vet checks? Well, I like the frogs to come into the veterinary hospital once a year at least. Um, I like to be able to... Uh, visualize the animal, to weigh the animal, um, to uh, gently use a moistened uh, cotton wool bud to move them around, um, uh, move their legs, look at the spaces under their legs, um, have a look in, usually I get people to bring them in in a, you know, those pet transporters, the small acrylic plastic um, aquarium-like structures. So I can look through the clear surface and look at the pattern of ventilation and look at the heartbeat of the animal through the the uh, clear plastic. Um, I think that once a year is good to do that, um, but I think a couple of times a year it's good to get a faecal sample and, and just assess that for parasites. As you said, um, even if we're not deliberately doing it, the frogs are going to have some access to some insects from um, that we, you know, may have uh, carry parasites. Um, and so it's good for us to just review those stools and make sure that there's nothing brewing before it becomes fulminant and causes a serious health issue for the frogs. Yep. And not surprisingly, once you explain it like you have there, Mark, um, most clients are quite keen to bring their froggies in for a regular preventative health check, aren't they? Well, once they've committed the, the relatively significant amount of resources to have a, an enclosure, once they've invested the time and money in acquiring frogs and caring for them, I think they are happy to bring them to someone who knows a little bit about them and, and to uh, have those general health issues reviewed um, and be confident they're doing everything the way they can, uh, the best they can at that time. Now, any final comments, Mark? We've had a couple of little um, glitches through this episode, but hopefully it pulls together quite well. Um, any final comments about frog care and advising your clients on on generic care of um, their first froggies? My, my big final um, question was that I was hoping that some of our listeners um, might uh, get in touch with us with some of the species. I'm interested in a little bit of a survey of species. I know that uh, I've talked about the tree frogs we get to see here in Australia, but if some of our listeners could send us a message, uh, including the species of frogs they've got to see, and I'd be very interested in that uh, spectrum of amphibians that are with that are in the the, uh, the sort of captive 
amphibian trade at the moment. So, yeah, my final statement is send us the frogs you've seen in clinical practice. Send us the species. Don't send us a frog. Send us a list of the frogs <laughs> <laughs> to vetgurus at gmail.com and we will see what sort of species are commonly kept um, by our subscribers and listeners, Mark. And I think with that, Mr. Outro Man's here and we will talk to you all next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website, vetgurus.com, where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time.